Yeah, man, thank you, Eli. No baby reindeer were harmed in the playing of that song because now we're after Thanksgiving, right? So we're, everything's good. How many heard that joke? You know, every time you play a Christmas song before Thanksgiving, an elf murders a baby reindeer or something like that. <laughs> but uh, that didn't work in our house because uh, Sirius XM has had Christmas music on now for uh, a couple of weeks, and my sons are always in the back, Dad, we can't listen to this. We can't listen to this. So I'm glad in this season. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. For those of you who are participating in junior church through sixth grade, you can be dismissed at this time. Uh, follow your teachers out to the foyer and make sure you pick them up on the way back uh, out toward your car. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I hope it was uh, an enjoyable fellowship time. We had uh, a full house. Laura's uh, family was with us. We had a, a great time and a lot of late nights and funny stuff. So we were just grateful for, to the Lord for all the all the good things. How many go out on Black Friday, but now it's really Thursday night? How many do that? Do the whole Black Friday? Some of you have to put up your hand. I saw you in the store, okay? So you got to admit it. So uh, we like doing that as a family. We have some fun with that. So uh, if you don't like that, that's fine. And uh, well, we don't feel guilty, and, and neither should you. So turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you would, as we uh, prepare to dig in. There's an old Swedish proverb that says, those who wish to sing always find a song. However, there are four consecutive chapters in Exodus where the Israelites took the opposite approach. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 11, they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness? If you just go one chapter forward in Exodus to 15, so the people grumbled to Moses saying, what shall we drink? And then one more chapter forward, Exodus 16 two, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, would, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. Just a pleasant group of people to be around, huh? When we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And one more chapter forward, Exodus 17, 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Uh, but the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? There's a story from the book, The Beautiful Land of Nod by Ella Wheeler Wilcox. It's called Grumble Tone. You've probably heard it. I'll, I'll read it to you. There was a boy named Grumbletone who ran away to sea. I'm sick of things on land, he said, as sick as I can be. A life upon the bounding wave is just the life for me. But seething ocean billows failed to stimulate his mirth, for he did not like the vessel or the dizzy rolling berth, and he thought the sea was almost as unpleasant as the earth. He wandered into foreign lands. He saw such wondrous sight, but nothing that he heard or saw seemed just exactly right, and so he journeyed on and on. Still seeking for delight, he talked with kings and ladies grand. He dined in courts, they say, but always found the people dull and longed to get away to search for that mysterious land where he should want to stay. He wandered all over the world. His hair grew white as snow. He reached that final bourne at last where all of us must go, but never found the land he sought. The reason, would you know, the reason was that north or south, where'er his steps were bent, on land or sea, in court or hall, he found but discontent, for he took his disposition with him everywhere he went. It seems that 
likely that Wilcox wrote that about Israel in the wilderness. And she also must have known something of the church in Corinth during Paul's time. Because beginning in verse 10 of chapter 1, Paul's addressing a similar attitude. Paul's general topic, as he is carried along by the Holy Spirit, is the health of the church. In specific, he is addressing what should be a wonderful trademark of the church, and that's unity. And he's doing that by addressing some problems with division. Uh, The church at Corinth had allowed themselves to be pulled into division, openly voicing differing viewpoints and preferences, hanging on to an unsubmissive spirit. And so he's calling them in these passages uh, to return to the unity that is so integral to effective ministry. And so he tells them to not allow schisms to remain, and we've seen this now, and we won't go back, but be made complete, be repaired, if you will, from brokenness of division. Then Paul goes on to illustrate for the church that all division, all schism, all backbiting, all gossip, all of that is all based in human wisdom. And he drew some pretty stark comparisons as he worked through those things between the wisdom of God, the gospel, which men consider foolishness, and the wisdom of men, which God considers foolishness. And we saw really three reasons why the church in Corinth should turn away from their factions, which are all based on the wisdom of men. That's the whole, all Paul's point as he stayed on this wisdom of men illustration. The first reason there to avoid faction and division we saw is that worldly wisdom that promotes faction and division is all going to be swept away by God. And then we saw the second reason that they're to avoid faction and division, which comes from the wisdom of men, is that the wisdom of man is powerless. And we saw that last time. In other words, the problem with man's wisdom and the preferences and the factions and disagreement is that it's enticing to sit around and talk about it. Paul probably would have agreed with Charles Spurgeon in his book, John Plowman's Talks, where he said in describing some churches, quote, fault finding is dreadfully catching. One dog will set a whole kennel to howling, end quote. Charles Spurgeon. That's the way it worked with Israel. That's the way it worked in the Corinthian church. But fault finding and faction can't do anything. That's what Paul said. People don't get changed lives from it. And Paul said then in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. So the main thing is that the Messiah died on the cross. That's the gospel. And the Jews and Gentiles were distracted from the main thing. And that was Paul's point. In the wisdom of men, they got distracted from the main thing. Something else got in the way. So Paul says this shouldn't be so for the church at Corinth. So that was his point. Then we saw the third principle from 1 Corinthians 1.25. You can look there. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Thirdly, Paul says... Man's wisdom, man's greatest wisdom and highest thoughts are infinitely eclipsed by the most simple of God's thoughts and the smallest representation of his power. So he really puts man's thoughts and man's wisdom, which give rise to all faction, division, and everything in the Corinthian church, correctly in its place. That man's loftiest thoughts, man's greatest wisdom, his highest thoughts are infinitely eclipsed by the most simple of God's thoughts and the smallest representation of his power. So Paul says factions, divisions only prove that worldly wisdom or wisdom from below, as we saw in James, is the main factor in the church. And all that wisdom from below is just all going to be swept away. Number two, it's powerless to do anything or solve any problems, the true problems men have. And so he says, focus on things that are eternal. Preach Christ crucified, which is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And that's where the power is found in the church. So that was Paul's emphasis as he worked his way through the first 25 verses. And Paul calls them back here again, because when divisions reign, he tells the Corinthian church, the ministry isn't happening. But when they all say the same thing, and they're all of the same mind, and of the same conclusion, Paul says, Ephesians 3.20, gives an example. He is able to do far abundantly beyond what all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Paul says that's the direction we want to go. 
And we're picking up today where we left off last Sunday, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1. Let's read there from 1 Corinthians 1, 26. We'll go all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. So read in your Bible with me. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. And I'll give you some verse cues so we can stay together if you're not reading from that version. Or you can find that in the back of the pew. Also, there are some notes available to you in, in the back of your bulletin. If you're a note taker, want to have some takeaway today, uh, there'll be some things uh, underlined on the screen behind me. That'll be your cue to fill in some of those blanks. Look at verse 26, if you would. Before we read this, let's bow. Will you bow in prayer? I just think I need to do this. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We're grateful for it. And Lord, I just pray today that as we think about man's wisdom and your wisdom, that you'll just take away all those things which are foolishness of men from this sermon. And help us to retain all the things that are your wisdom that come from you from your word. I pray you'll not let anything get in the way of us understanding exactly what you'd have to say here today and the encouragement that comes by way of these verses. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Verse 28, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. Verse 30, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Verse 31, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now look at chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Verse 2, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Verse 4, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. Let's pause right there. Now you can see Paul's not going to stop with this topic. And it's important to him, and of all the things he could have addressed with the Corinthian church, and there were many things, as we're going to work our way through, that inhibited the health and, and, uh, the, uh, and the prosperity of that church, he starts with this one. It has to do with division, it has to do with faction, personal preference, gossip, all the things that are uh, coming along with all those things. And he deals with them numerous ways and uses himself as an example. And so Paul's going to continue here, so, so will we. Now look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Stop right there. Now he tells the church, uh, there are not many that the world would consider intellectuals among you. He says, there's not many that the world would consider influential. There are not many of high rank. No, there's just a whole lot of them, just us, he says, around here at the church. And God had a purpose for all of this. Now look at verse 27 through 29, which is going to give God's purpose, and we'll break all this down when we come back to it. Verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Verse 28. And the base, and that's literally low-born, the low-born things of the world, and the despised, and that's literally those things that are continually disdained. God has chosen the things that are not, and those are things not considered, things that are not brought up in conversation, so that he may nullify, and that's the word put it into, or to use up or exhaust, the things that are. So that, verse 29, no man may boast before God. So one of the purposes then that the Lord chose the church from the humble people was to use it as a living testimony to the world 
that he doesn't need rank, he doesn't need its rank, he doesn't need its influence, he doesn't need its wisdom to accomplish the most important thing on earth. That's the purpose for God choosing the base things of the world to uh, confound the wise. He chose the base things of the world to populate the church. The giving of the gospel, the making of disciples, the most important thing on earth. God doesn't need human wisdom, he doesn't need uh, its rank, he doesn't need the world's influence to accomplish those things. The simplicity then of the church stands then really as a rebuke against the complexity of the world's wisdom and all the things that come along with it. We don't need the world's wisdom, and the paradox really proves that. Uh, we who are the simplest, the most foolish in the world's eyes, are the wisest. That's what Paul is saying. And so Christians stand for all time as a living rebuke to the so-called wise. And Paul's carried along by the Holy Spirit, really contrasting what God has chosen and what he has not chosen. God's chosen the foolish things to shame the wise. God's chosen the weak things to shame the strong. God's chosen lowborn things to despise the not even conversation things uh, through those things to put an end to the world system. God doesn't need human wisdom, and Paul makes a very strong emphasis here. The wisdom of man as it's displayed in faction, as it's displayed in preference and discord, Paul says, which are Paul's topic series he deals with the Corinthian church, is really in the business of crowding out the gospel of Christ. That's exactly what it does in the church. It crowds out the gospel. All the things that have to do with man's wisdom, all the things that have to do with, with uh, uh, faction, all the things that have to do with division, all just crowd out the ministry. They just crowd out the gospel. And Paul says, listen, God has chosen these things to confound the wise, and God shows in every corner he doesn't need it. He doesn't need man's wisdom. And the second purpose that God chose the simple, and the base despised, etc., is so that, verse 29, look there, no man may boast before God. So God can remove all of human boasting. Purpose of God in choosing all of these things, the simple to confound the wise, and put to death those things that are man's wisdom. And Paul really is simply reminding them of is that the purpose of salvation was that God may be glorified. In order for God to get the most glory, he made sure that you had the least to do with your salvation, both in men's wisdom, both in men's uh, influence, and all those things. And so just to remind you, who knows, who, look at verse 24. Here's the question. Who knows Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God? At verse 24. Who knows that? Those who are the called, right? Both Jews and, Gen and Greeks. Verse 26 says, consider your calling. Verse 27 says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame that which is strong. Uh, God has, verse 28, chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So here's the thing. The highest level of human wisdom can do nothing to change his heart or to know or the heart of man or to know God. You were saved because you were chosen of God in his marvelous grace for his own glory, by his own power, according to his own purpose. And the result of that is verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. Verse 26, consider your calling. Those who are the called, verse 24. Those chosen, God has chosen the foolish things. God's chosen the weak things. God's chosen the things that are not. See? Really puts men's wisdom in its place. So that no man may boast before God. Then he turns right around and he says it again. Look at verse 30. By his doing, see, you are in Christ Jesus. Now once again, believers, a believer is in Christ. And when he comes into Christ, he doesn't stay simple. He doesn't stay powerless for long. Look at the rest of verse 30. This is such a great passage. Now, there is some rebuke in here, obviously. But I think there's a lot of edification in here as well. And, and I think it will resonate with you as we read it. By his doing, look at verse 30, you are in Christ Jesus, mark this, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 
Now, beloved, as you read that, and we did this earlier in this chapter, that is as wonderful a list of benefits as ever we have known, isn't it? And I want to pause here for a minute or two and just illustrate this with a few places in the New Testament because I think it's easy to skip over that. Christ became to us wisdom and righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Because those are very important words in a Christian vocabulary. And wisdom, of course, is applied knowledge. So what is it that the New Testament says that we know because of what Christ has done? Well, 2 Corinthians 4.6 is a great place to start. And that illustrates for us, initially, for God who said... Light shall shine out of the darkness. Now, that's right at the beginning, okay? That's creation. God is in the business of doing that. He did it when he created the world physically, but he also was able to do it spiritually. So at the beginning is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, Christ became to us wisdom. So when we were redeemed, catch this, God turned on the light. Now, wisdom is knowledge applied. The first thing indicated here that a believer learns when he becomes a believer is the glory of God. That's what you learn. You receive that in Christ. Now, when we say the glory of God, what do we mean? We've gone over this numerous times. It's just all that God is, okay? All of his attributes, all of his nature. And we came to know that in the face of Christ. Before, you couldn't know it. But now, through Christ, you do. You know the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. That's pretty significant stuff. That becomes yours because you became a believer. You believe by faith. God had called you. He he chose you. He has chosen the foolish things. He called both Jews and Greeks. It's his doing that you're in Christ. All those things we just read. So God not only reveals himself to us, but his will to us. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. We'll just put it on the screen for time. In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This is something else we know. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, talking about our salvation, of course, you picked, that up, you picked that up, in all wisdom and insight. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us, here it is, the mystery of his will. God not only reveals himself to us, but he reveals his will to us. What it's talking about is the sweep of God's plan. And that's indicated in the next verse. According to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, that's Jesus, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. Speak clearly, Paul. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. So when you became a believer, you were given the knowledge of his will, how everything will wrap up. You received that. And not only have you been given this, there's a future aspect of what you've been given. The knowledge you were given is progressive. Verse 17 of Ephesians 1 tells us that. The God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. There's more to it, see? A maturity in a continuing enlightenment of him. Now look at the next verse, verse 18. I'll give you a second to jot that down if you want. <clears throat> verse 18 continues this idea of this continuing enlightenment, this progressive nature of the knowledge that you've been given. Paul prays. Verse 18, he says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These, Paul says, are in accordance with the working of the, of the strength of his might. So he's powerful enough to, get you, to, to bring you this way, to let you understand these things. So both hope and inheritance And powerful, spirit-filled living have a future aspect, correct? Do you catch that? You have knowledge in Christ. See, you have wisdom, which is applied knowledge. And part of what you know 
is progressive. Hope, inheritance, and powerful spirit living. We're hoping for the fullness of redemption. We're hoping for an inheritance which is reserved for us, laid aside for us. We are hoping for powerful living in the future as we go and walk our walk in Christ. When you were saved, you came to know God, God's plan, your destiny. And there's a future aspect to it which God's going to bring to completion in your life. So a Christian knows where he came from, he knows what he's doing, and he knows where he's going. And that is called the fullness of knowledge, the fullness of knowledge. It comes because of salvation. And wisdom is really living your life, listen, in light of this fullness of knowledge that you have. You understand? That's wisdom. Catch that. In light of the fullness of knowledge that you have, you live. See, that's wisdom. You have that knowledge from the Lord, the knowledge of His will, the knowledge of His glory, and you're to live your life in a response to that. That's wisdom. That's a gift to you from the Lord. See? And it comes because of salvation. Because you know where you came from and what you're supposed to be doing here and where you're going. And you live your life in light of that knowledge. Now look back at 1 Corinthians 1.31. We're going to bounce back and forth here every time we look at a word because they're so significant to us as believers. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The great thing about all of this is the glory is God's because we didn't do anything. God gave us this wisdom. If I know where I came from, if I know why I'm here, if I know why, where I'm going... Is that because, is that so that I can boast? No. What did I do? It was an act of God, according to the scriptures. You are in Christ, and Christ has made unto you wisdom. Now look at the next word. Verse 30. Who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Righteousness. So in addition to wisdom, you also received righteousness. And we learned in our study through the first 11 chapters of Romans... The believer has received imputed righteousness. And you've been with us, you understand that. Romans chapter 4, particularly, a great chapter on Abraham's faith. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That's imputed righteousness. Before God you stand right as opposed to wrong, good as opposed to bad, sinless as opposed to sinful. When you responded to Jesus Christ, when God called you and you believed, you were made right before God. That's the issue. And Paul reminds the church of this here in chapter 1. But in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he reminds them again in that amazing verse, he made him who knew no sin, we just were saying that with Alex, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Colossians 1.13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, this forgiveness of sin. It's very important for Paul to remind the churches under his care of the main thing, just like he reminded the Corinthian church. That's the main thing. Not the wisdom of men, but what God has done, what he's accomplished in the lives of those who believe. Philippians 3.9, a great illustration there as well, and may is talking about himself and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, Paul says, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which come from God on the basis of faith. Because you don't have any on your own, see? Paul says, I want to be found having his righteousness. And you know, it's a wonderful thing to realize, beloved, that when you're saved, you not only get wisdom, but you get an absolute, total righteousness before God. Your sin is done away with. That's a very important concept that many modern believers miss. You have to receive that by faith. That's what God says about you, see. And many live under a, a sense of guilt or a constantly turmoil in their life because of the things that uh, occur in the flesh. And listen, you have received imputed righteousness. 
And that is true about you forever. And God can do that because Christ took your sin and bore it on the cross, paid the penalty, and God is satisfied. Look back at verse 30. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, and here's another word, sanctification. And beloved, we could spend a long time on each of these. We could do a message for each one, more than one message. Well, this one means to be set apart or holy. At salvation, God began an inside work of making you holy. Before you are a Christian, evil all the time, just sin all the time. When you became a believer, all these all of a sudden holiness with intermittent sin. See? We've talked about that before, and you remember this as we worked, worked through Romans chapter 6, that uh, when you come to Christ, the old man died, and the new man rose, and the old man didn't rise back again, stayed in the grave. You rose with Christ. And so you're fit for heaven, see, on the inside. The new you is the righteous you, the imputed righteousness comes to you. You are in Christ. And Christ rose and you rose before you came to Christ. The old man and the flesh were in perfect harmony with each other. Whatever the flesh wanted to do, the old man was good with. And pretty much you just did whatever you wanted. There didn't seem to be a whole lot of conflict. When you came to faith in Christ, you have a new you. Still in the old flesh because we're waiting for glorification of that flesh, right? And so now it's conflict all the time, isn't it? Because the inner man is new, and the outer man is still dying, right? The flesh, where we have all the trouble. And so, God says that you've received sanctification. At salvation, God began an inside work of making you holy. Before you are a Christian, evil all the time, sin all the time, you became a Christian, a sudden holiness with intermittent sin. And as we've seen as a principle in the scriptures over and over, listen, this is very important that you catch this, Okay. There is a sense in which this is a completed act. You're looked at by God as set apart and holy. And there is a sense in which this is also a process. And it is surely going to happen because God, in God's eyes, it's already complete and true about you. And Paul really illustrates that. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 brings that very clearly to light. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Paul talks about it as if it's future, Correct. And may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, we receive sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Paul prays that you'll be sanctified entirely. Will Paul's prayer come true? Will Paul's prayer come true, beloved? Absolutely. Absolutely. He's praying along with God's revealed plan, isn't he? He's praying exactly what God has said he has done. He's praying along with God's stated intent and the final product. Holiness is something God has done already in us, isn't it? And he's doing then as an experiential basis from day to day. 1 Corinthians 6.11, as Paul talks about those at Corinth, and we'll get to this passage, but it says, Such were some of you, as he talked about numerous sins, and it wasn't an exhaustive list, but he says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were, what's it say? Sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. And maturity, beloved, maturity is the decreasing frequency of those sins as you eliminate them walking in the Spirit. You see? That's the active part. Paul says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, but there's also an experiential part of it too. Just like the rest of these things. Galatians 5.16, but I say, Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. So Paul says, in an experiential issue, 
on a day-to-day basis, you're going to have to walk by the Spirit, aren't you? You have to let the Word of God dwell in you richly with all wisdom, as we saw before. Walk by the Spirit, you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. We're right before God, that's, an, that's a judicial thing. We're actually made holy, and that's an experiential thing. We walk this life. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, and this is probably the, the clearest showing of the tension between the two, the judicial and the experiential. But like the Holy One who called you, there again, God's work, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. So Paul's telling them to do it, right? So it implies that maybe they're not. So be holy in all your behavior because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Okay, so a future aspect and a present aspect, God's holy, and you shall be holy on a day-to-day basis and for sure for the future. You're going to be holy, God says, because I'm holy, I'm at work in you, so conduct yourself then in that way. And the verse is as good as a blend of judicial and experiential as there is in the New Testament. And of course, all of that is not done in the power of the flesh. You're not pulling that out of your hat, beloved. Okay, the Holy Spirit begins to conform us into the image of Christ as we allow the Holy Spirit to, uh, we, we dwell on the Word of God and the Holy Spirit is then able to reveal those things and hold, hold the Holy Standard up before us and we see what God has done and we're thankful and we're keeping a short sin list and we're you know, putting to death the deeds of the flesh and all the things that we've talked about, okay? And you understand that. Ordering your life, adding to uh, your salvation knowledge, right, as Peter says. There's so many things that are part of this dynamic that work in your life as your willing and your volitional will is submitted than to the Lord who is your master and your savior. So, 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. I know you get this. There's that transformation, isn't it? A slow transformation an experiential process that you can see in your life, and as maturity begins to get there, a decreasing frequency of those sins which once beset you. And as we said before so many times, right? If you are a liar, if you're a, a gossip, if you're a thief, if you're a drunkard or whatever you are, and you come to faith, God has called you. Uh, the word is planted in your heart. He's used that word to, uh, to bring you to himself. You are a born-again drunkard, uh, liar, thief, okay? But now you have a new person on the inside, and a Holy Spirit resident who is now tutoring you and allowing you to understand the Word of God and you begin to be shaped into the image of His Son, a reprint. And a very important process that you understand. Both the completed thing that the Lord looks at you and it says, judicially, you are sanctified. And then that experiential process of walking in the Spirit from glory to glory. And I know you get this. Paul's just preaching Christ and Him crucified. And so are we, see. Marvelous benefits are overwhelming. But Paul wants to bring them back. Listen, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. These are the main things, okay? Focus on them. Now, let's look at the last one from 1 Corinthians 1.30. We're going to be done a little early today, I think. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. Here it is. And redemption. And redemption. And here Paul adds another great word to the Christian vocabulary, redemption. Redeemed means to purchase. And God, by Christ, has purchased us from the power of sin. We're redeemed. 1 Peter 1.18, a marvelous illustration of this very important point. As Peter says this, knowing, 
that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Verse 19, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, Ephesians 1 says. That's a reality for you. That's a reality for me. And that's ours in Christ. Look at it. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. What did you do to earn wisdom? Nothing. You can't get that kind of wisdom on your own, as we saw in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. Right? You, eye is not seen, neither ear heard, nor have been imagined in the hearts of men. All that God has prepared for those who love him. And that doesn't necessarily have to do with heaven, beloved. It has to do with this knowledge of the Lord, which can't be found by study. It can't be found by pondering it. You can't hear it and understand it. Apart from, 1 Corinthians 2 goes on and says, the resident Holy Spirit. So the wisdom, you can't get that kind of wisdom on your own. What did you do to earn righteousness? By the deeds of the law, what kind of flesh will be justified? No flesh will be justified. You didn't do anything. What did you do to be made holy? You can't make yourself holy. What did you do to, earn, to redeem yourself? You couldn't pay the price. It's too high. So we come again to verse 31, don't we? Look back there, 1 Corinthians 1, 31. So that, just as it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when Paul says, so just as it is written, he just, he's quoting Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. This is a verse that my boys and I learned from memory many years ago. Very important verse for young ones. If you are raising ones in your house, you should have them memorize this. Thus said the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me. The Lord speaking of himself, of course. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And that's what Paul's quoting there. When he says, just as it's written, that's the verse that he's connecting to. He's the one who's done it all, and he has some priorities, and they don't include the wisdom of man, among other things, and man's riches and man's power. They don't include any of those things. But let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see all that you are, beloved, wise, righteous, holy, redeemed, all due to the wisdom of God. He goes through that list, perhaps to remind them of what they need to be speaking about, boasting in the Lord, not in their own opinions, not in their own preferences, not in doing things their own way. There's no need for all of that, Paul says. There's no place for all of that. That won't do what has to be done. It won't give you true wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, or redemption. In fact, it takes you in the opposite direction of those things, and all it'll do is polarize you at points that don't really matter. Now I'm going to end with this passage. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14 to 16. Seems so far away from the Western church, but perhaps not from Berean. Perhaps you are, you are with this verse and you understand this, and this is at work in your heart. But may it never be, Paul says, that I would boast in anything. See, not in my own knowledge, not in my own preference, not in my own whatever. See, Paul continually talks about this. I'm not boasting about anything about myself, see. Except, he says, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which... The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Does that describe you? In other words, Paul says, the cross changed my relationship to the world. Verse 15, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. 
The cross recreated me, Paul said, which changed my relationship to the flesh. Now mark this, verse 16. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. When the main thing, beloved, is the main thing, peace and mercy. Not faction, as in the First Corinthian Church, not division, not thinking your own thing, not coming to your own conclusion, not doing what you want to do in an obstinate rebellion. Not that, Paul says, not that. But instead, the cross of Christ, Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's the main thing, he said. So he goes through this list, perhaps to remind them of what they need to be speaking about. Because Paul always adds back when he says you shouldn't be doing this, but this is what you should be doing. So as we saw in Romans 6, you don't surrender yourselves to works of unrighteousness, but surrender your members to works of righteousness so we can change patterns. But no doubt there was an edifying intent in all of this. And if my own reaction to studying this again this week is any indication, perhaps it's a perfect place to pause today and be thankful on this Thanksgiving weekend. Amen? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer today. We have a few announcements, and then we'll be off to our afternoon. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be with the church, to fellowship, to pray, to give, uh, to study your word, all these things saints have been doing uh, since the first century. And we're grateful we can continue in it. I pray that we'll be simple just like that, uh, concerned about those things which are of concern to you. Thank you for what you've made us. Thank you for what you've done in Christ, in the face of Christ. We've seen these things. And Father, I pray that those will be our emphasis, that you'll revitalize us who need to be revitalized, encourage those who need to be encouraged, reprove those who need to be reproved. And Lord, I pray that you'll strengthen us continually, that we might do the things you'd have us do. Thank you for those that you brought into our midst to help us to fellowship and encourage and, and grow and disciple those that you've given us. Thank you for the many ministries you've allowed us to have. I pray that you'll guide us as we continue them throughout the following year. You know all that that holds, so give us understanding. Father, for our time tonight as we spend it in communion and in singing, Lord, I pray that we'll really bring attention to your own name. In praise and testimony, those things uh, of your attributes may be clear because we have been given your wisdom and part of that knowledge that we have is of your glory and of your will. So we praise you for those things, and we thank you. We thank you for the edification of this verse, particularly this last verse 30. It's so clear to us. Thank you for the benefits that belong to us. Help us to live that way. As we saw earlier, help us to open our mouths. We've been given all knowledge and all understanding to do the job at hand. Help us to be doing that job and witnessing on a regular basis, Father. As we examine our life, as we look at the opportunities we've had and those that we've missed, help us to realize then where we are really in light of your plan. And then, Lord, help us to make the proper changes that are necessary. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, whom we adore and long to see and labor in his name. Amen.